Hello and welcome to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. I am Lauren Foster, and this is the show where we bring you an unbiased lens on investing in capital markets through short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. This week, we have a really fascinating show for you, and it's on a topic we've not covered before, digital asset securities, also known simply as digital securities or security tokens. And I'm excited to introduce my guest, Carlos Domingo. Carlos is a serial technology entrepreneur and CEO and co-founder of Securitize, a firm that uses its leading blockchain technology to make private capital markets more accessible, efficient, compliant, and liquid. He holds a master's in computer science from the Tokyo Institute of Technology and a bachelor's and PhD in computer science from the Polytechnic University of Catalonia in Barcelona. We talk about how Carlos first came upon blockchain technology and how that discovery led to the co-founding of Securitize. We also discuss the promise of digital securities to drive liquidity for private securities and democratize access to investing. It's a fascinating topic, but since this is our first foray into the space, I would consider it an introduction. We barely scratched the surface in the time we had, but I hope to return to the topic for a follow-up conversation in a few months. And some exciting news before we start. The Take 15 podcast now has its own YouTube channel, so be sure to check it out and subscribe so you can stay up to date with our latest interviews. We've also added show notes to the episode, so you'll find links to the articles we mention in case you want to learn more. And now, on with the show. Please enjoy my conversation with Carlos Domingo. Carlos Domingo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me to speak here. So I've been really excited to have you on the show because this is our first time, I think, ever having a conversation about digital asset securities. So I'm really looking forward to exploring this and for, uh, I guess, helping our listeners understand this a little bit better. So we've had a lot of guests on the show who have really interesting backgrounds, but I have to say, when I looked at your bio, I found it like really intriguing. Um, it sort of goes from Spain to Japan to Dubai, and now I presume you're in Miami, you're in the US. And I was just so curious about what took you from Spain to Tokyo. So perhaps we can start there. How did you end up in Tokyo? So I, I ended up a bit accidentally. So actually, I, I studied computer science in Spain. And then uh, I don't know if in Europe there is a program called Erasmus that allows you to like basically go one year and study somewhere else in Europe. This is when, when the European Union was being formed, so students could actually go to a different European country and get to know each other, et cetera. So I went to Sweden, uh, to a place called Lund in the south of Sweden, and I started, you know, researching for what I wanted to do, uh, do a master and a PhD. And then on my way back, completely accidentally, I went to a conference in Amsterdam, and I met a Japanese professor, and he basically told me, oh, if you're interested in doing a PhD, we, you know, we have some grants from the Japanese government to take foreign st uh, students. And I was like, yeah, sure, yeah, so if someone is going to pay me to do my PhD, that's even better than me having to work as a system professor or something. So I applied and I got the scholarship and, um, you know, I thought it was very intriguing. I had never been in Japan at that time, I had no, not much knowledge of Japan. This, this was in the late 80s. So at that time, traveling was not like these days that people travel everywhere. So, um, so I decided to take it. It was a very good, uh, you know, 
conditions. The university was the top technical university in Japan, the Tokyo Institute of Technology. So I accepted the scholarship and moved there. I ended up living for over 10 years. So. Wow, amazing. So I'd love to hear just your impressions. So when you first got to Japan, what was it like for you coming from Spain? And then 10 years later, when you left, like what had you sort of like, what was your favorite sort of foods or experiences living in Japan? So it was very interesting to go to Japan because obviously at that time, you know, Japan was very Japanese in the sense that there was nothing written in English everywhere. And, you know, there was very few foreigners, uh, especially Western foreigners that live in Japan. And, and the same thing like from Spain, somebody going to Japan back then was like a very uh, exotic thing, right? So, so my experience was at the beginning, you're super excited because everything is new, everything is super modern and technology everywhere. They had mobile phones when nobody had mobile phones in Europe. And then they introduced the first mobile phone with a camera a company called JPhone. So we, we had phones with cameras and mobile internet before anybody else in the world. But at the same time, it, you know, after the, the initial excitement, it was a bit hard to be there because obviously the language barrier is very big and, you know, it's hard to communicate with the locals. The very few people spoke English back then, uh, et cetera. But then once you overcome those difficulties, it's actually a great place to be. I really love Japan. I consider this my second home. Uh, after Spain and made you know really good friends spend a lot of time there as a student first and then uh, working and you know now I you know get to go uh, as well because we have a company that's a subsidiary and we raise money from from Japanese investors uh, and in terms of the food I don't know I think that Japan Japanese food and Spanish food are probably the best foods in the world right they're very different but they're the best ones so it, it was great to coming from a country with good uh, food culture, like Spain going to another country with a good food culture was a very good thing. I have to say, I'm incredibly envious. I, I love food and I think you're right between Spain and, and Japan, you're incredibly fortunate. So we're going to switch over from, from Japan to Dubai, uh, because as I was reading about your background, you have a very unique origin story for coming into the blockchain community. And I'd love for you to tell listeners where you were and what you were doing uh, when you were first introduced to this blockchain technology. So, so after Japan, I, you know, move around. I went to the U.S. for a few years as well. That was my first experience in the U.S. And then went back to Spain, to my home country, to work for Telefonica, which is one of the largest telcos uh, on kind of like digital transformation and digital products. And after eight years at Telefonica, I got an offer to move to, to Dubai to work also for a telecommunications company there. Uh, so I decided to go there. I had never been in the Middle East uh, when I first went there. I found it also fascinating to you know get to know a different part of the world, a different culture. And while I was working there, you know, the Dubai government had a project for smart cities, and they were trying to promote the adoption of new technologies. Dubai is always trying to be at the forefront of many things, and uh, you know, technology is one of them. So, so through this project of uh, you know building a smart city platform for the city of Dubai, uh, we stumbled upon blockchain as one of the ideas uh, you know, to work on. And that was kind of the first time I have heard of Bitcoin and blockchain like everybody else, but this was 2016. So the first time that I really got deeper into technology was at that time. And I got fascinated about it. And I thought like, well, this is probably the next thing I want to do is to, to work in this space. And and, uh, and I needed to find a project so, so to get into the space. And that's what led to the creation of Securitize. So so for us in on the, on the background there, so you've, you know, co-founder Securitize, how did that come about? And what is Securitize? So, so we founded, co-founded Securitize uh, out of an other firm project. So we had the idea of, you know, there was a lot of people talking about tokenization and issuing tokens on the blockchain and utility tokens and security tokens and the different kind of things. And 
Um, there was a lot of people doing ICOs, which you know, for the most part were unregulated sales of securities. And then we had the idea of why don't we conduct a regulated ICO? So let's do an ICO, which was this initial coin offerings which where people will sell uh, a cryptocurrency or a token that represents some sort of value in a project, um, but in a regulated way. In other words, sell it as a security, which securities are you know highly regulated uh, in, in all the countries. So so we you know tokenize an issue a security token or digital asset securities, as people refer to them now, for a venture capital firm called Spice VC. And then once we finalized, the project was successful and uh, became well known in the industry. And a lot of people approached us to basically use the same technology we developed ourselves for other people. And that's that led to kind of the creation of Securitize um, and spun out from, from Spice VC originally. And then we founded the company in November 2017, and we've been running it for over two years now. So when people sort of ask you, okay, you're the, the co-founder of Securitize, so what exactly do you do? How do you sort of give it in the, the simplest possible terms? So in the simplest possible terms, without talking about technology or blockchain or tokens and stuff like that, is we basically, you know, help companies digitize private securities. Um, and that means, you know, the, the world of capital markets is divided into, you have public markets, let's say Apple shares or you know, Apple stock or Microsoft stock, et cetera, that are very accessible. Anybody can go purchase them, trade them. There's lots of different venues. They have their own inefficiencies that most people are not aware of. Uh, although recently with the whole, you know, GameStop and Robin Hood, uh, people are getting more exposed to the inefficiencies of part, uh, public capital markets, but for the most part, they work well. But private capital markets, I suppose, are very opaque, um, are very inaccessible for investors. They, they're very costly to serve. They're very poorly digitized. And they are very extremely liquid. It's very difficult to trade uh, private securities. So what we do is we provide a platform that allows, you know, for digitization of private securities to improve capital formation, asset servicing, and secondary market trading. Great. So we're going to come back to that in a bit. But before we do, I just want to try and sort of do some level setting because you know we were chatting about this uh, off mic. There are lots of different terms that we're throwing about, and I just want to make sure that. The audience, uh, some will know a lot about the space, some will know nothing about the space, and it's easy to kind of confuse or conflate different terms. So we were just talking about, you know, what's the right term for like security tokens, and you sort of explained to me it's, you know, digital asset securities. We hear a lot about blockchain, we hear a lot about crypto. Um, just if you don't mind, just walk us through and just kind of explain the subtle nuances between those different terms so that we make sure we're, we're all talking on the same page here. So people refer to digital assets are as the like native digital representation of some side, some type of asset, right? And an asset could be a currency, could be a commodity, or could be a security. A security basically means it's an investment contract. So you get, you know, equity in a company or, or debt, um, or you get, uh, you know, some sort of revenue share, or you get, uh, you know, a unit of investment on a fund and things like that. Those are securities. So. Yeah, currencies, commodities, securities, this probably summarizes most of the type of assets. And digital assets are typically digital, native digital representations of those type of assets. And then issue on the blockchain. That's what most people do these days. Because the blockchain happens to be like a very good platform for representing ownership of assets, right? So within digital assets, you have cryptocurrencies, which obviously represent currencies. Um, you have things like Bitcoin, which is really our currency, it's more of a store of value and it's treated as a commodity. And then you have assets, digital assets that represent securities. So it's basically, you know, represents equity on a company as a, as a native digital representation on the blockchain. This is what typically is referred to 
these days as digital asset securities. And kind of before that, people used to refer to it as security tokens because the, the token is the technical term that people use on the blockchain when they issue ownership representation of something. Uh, but it's a very geeky term if you want because it refers to a piece of technology. So I, I like the term digital asset security is better. Um, and the, the regulators have started using digital asset securities as the term. So I think this would be the term that will stay. So can you give us some examples um, of the type of assets that you are, I guess, uh, issuing these digital asset securities against? So is it VC funds, real estate, buildings? I don't know. Give, give us some examples. Yes. So, so we, we've done funds, you know, venture capital firms uh, like blockchain capital, you know, private equity firms, uh, etc. Uh, we've done um, real estate funds, so the, the building itself is not a security, right? You, you can purchase a building or you can purchase a house and you're not purchasing a security, right? You're purchasing an asset, uh, which is not a security. Uh, if you, most, most people invest in real estate through funds uh, structure, either real estate investment trust or other type of structures. And, that, and then what you're purchasing is not the building, you're purchasing, you know, equity or debt on an instrument that purchases buildings, right? So that, those are securities, and then we've tokenized those as well, and we've issued digital asset securities. And then we've done also operating businesses um, where you get equity in the company. That's the simplest uh, you know, structure if you want. We've also done some other more like innovative structures where you're purchasing a revenue a share uh, on a revenue stream, so the company generates revenue and gives 10% back to the owners of the digital asset security. So we've done a variety of those. So I'm wondering if you consider what you are doing as, I'm going to use the word sort of revolutionary in terms of how you're changing the marketplace. And there was a quote that I saw somewhere where you said, you know, we're reinventing private capital markets from the ground up. So is what you're doing revolutionary? I like to, to think that it is, right? Because if you think about how people, the last 10, 20 years, public markets, which is what is accessible to, to the everyday investor, have been declining, have been shrinking in size. And when companies go public today, like recently in the US, we've seen IPOs of companies like Airbnb, which everybody knows and everybody loves Airbnb, and Palantir, which is less known, but it's also a very well-known uh, company. Those companies are 15, 16 years old. By the time they go public, the valuation of these companies is very high. And for the most part, you know, the people that bought at the beginning are the ones that really made a lot of money. And anybody that comes after, once they go public, they have less upside uh, potential. It used to be different, right? So when companies like PayPal or Google uh, or Facebook, or Facebook, maybe not, but Amazon, these companies went public when they were still very small. And therefore, if you invested, you know, $10,000 on, on the Amazon IPO, you will make, you probably have made like $20 million today. This is probably not true anymore for companies investing on the you know, for investors investing on public companies. The money is made on the private markets. So investing in private markets and make them more efficient and more accessible and more liquid is very revolutionary because it can probably open up, uh, you know, those investment opportunities to a broader base uh, of investors and kind of democratize a little bit the access to where professionals are making money to, to all the type of investors. So Just re refresh my memory. There was a slide that I saw that might have been in one of your... your um... The articles that you wrote that I guess showed the size of the private markets versus the public markets. Do you know which slide I'm re referring to? Like the size? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So private markets are much bigger. <laughs> Everybody knows that. So, you know, on a yearly basis, there is maybe, I don't know, $1.5 trillion raised 
on private markets and there's twice those uh, on public sorry and there's like three trillion three trillion dollars raised on uh, on on the private markets and the, the aggregated volume of the private markets is maybe you know 10 20 times bigger so these, these are much bigger markets that uh, than public markets but uh, as i mentioned they're not accessible to people so uh, and they're not, and they have a lot of inefficiencies, and they're very liquid, which also makes it inaccessible because you know small investors need liquidity uh, on when they invest in an asset in case they need the money, etc. So I think this is why it's important, right? Because where people are making money today is not necessarily only on public capital markets, but on private ones. So making those more accessible and you know cheaper to serve and, and more liquid is a big deal. Yes. So I had asked you before if, if what you were doing is revolutionary. And uh, one of the analogies I had read is that you're trying to do for the sort of the clunky, antiquated private capital markets, what Steve Jobs did for music. So bring it into the 21st century through digitization. Is that a fair analogy? That's that's a very good analogy. I, I like the, the, the example of the music because, you know, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the, the vinyl LPs where, where you used to consume music with these big LPs, the black ones, and there was an analog, right? And then in the 80s, the compact disc arrived, and this was supposed to be a digital version of the LP, right? But for the most part, the, the consumption experience didn't actually change that much, right? Because you still have to buy a physical device, yes, the form factor was smaller and was easier to carry it. And, but you still have to go to, you know, Virgin Records or, uh, or Virgin Megastore or Tower Records somewhere to purchase a physical CD that contains, you know, 12 to 15 songs and pay for the entire album, etc. But because it was digital, it opened up to people realizing you could do different things. And then, you know, Steve Jobs and, uh, and Apple, they started first with the iPod, telling people, look, this is a mini hard disk where you can rip off all your CDs and all your music, and then suddenly you can carry in your pocket thousands of songs. And that's how the iPod used to advertise, right? I don't know if you remember those that says, you know, rip, uh, mix, and play, because they, they were incentivizing people to rip off the music of the CD and put them on the iPod and then mix them up and carry their thousand songs in your pocket. And then the next thing people realize is, well, if it's digital, I don't actually need to buy a physical device to take a digital property, right? I can just download it off the internet, and this is how iTunes started selling, you know, albums uh, online. And then the next thing is, well, I don't actually need to buy the entire album, right? Because they know the process of selling it's so efficient that I can just buy one song for a dollar or a dollar ninety-nine, and that was that sounds like a stupid thing today, but it was very revolutionary. I remember when you could just suddenly buy one song, the song of that album that you like, without having to buy the entire album. And the next thing is, well, you don't actually have to buy it, right? You can just stream it when you need it and pay a subscription. And this Spotify and these other companies came up, and it completely changed the music industry, right? Not only the consumption experience, but also the business model, the players, etc. So. I'm, I'm pretty passionate about the same thing for private capital markets. We are just at the at the beginning of the journey into digitization. It kind of sounds like a bit of a boring thing today because we're just providing a digital version of something paper-based and physical that exists. But when things become digitized, new you know use cases, applications, etc., you know, appear in the market that people don't even think about it. Like it's happened with music. I don't think anybody. Had, Sony, when they invested the compact disc, they thought people in the future will stream music and will subscribe to, you know, a music service, right? right? So, yeah. So when I was doing some research ahead of our conversation, I came across an article that was an institutional investor, and it was uh, about a new research paper that's uh, titled "Tokenization of Alternative Investments," and it was published by BNP um, Paribas Asset Management and Kaya Association and Liquify. And the article in II was headlined. 
this quirky trend could bring alternative assets to the masses. So I guess I have sort of three questions that, that, that come to mind of this one. Well, first of all is, you know, is it a quirky trend? Would you consider it a quirky trend? Uh, the second part would be, you know, what will it take uh, for the investing public to, I guess, broadly adopt, you know, tokenized assets? And then following on from that, you know, are investors ready for digital asset securities? So that's, um, that's a very good question. I don't know if it's a quirky term or not. Um, I think that for this to be, you know, adopted by the masses, we need to make it not quirky. We need to make it very accessible and very simple. Um, so I, I really like, even though these days they're not very popular, but what Robinhood did for stock trading and for options trading is they make it very accessible to the masses. And, and I really feel that, you know, private securities and digital asset securities uh, and, and security tokens, et cetera, to be adopted by the masses, we need to make it very simple and eliminate all the complexity of the blockchain. The blockchain, you know, to some extent, blockchain technologies are kind of like where dial-up was for the internet, right? That you, you remember when internet started and you needed to connect to the internet, you have to, you know, do the dial-up, you have to install the driver of the modem and call a phone number, and it was very quicker, right, back then. Uh, so it was very difficult to do it, and but still people did it because it, it added a lot of value. People could connect to each other on the internet. But over time, technology got to the point that today you connect to the internet with your phone and you're not even you don't do anything, right? You just open your phone and it's connected to the internet. It's like magic, right? So, so we need to get to this point for, for mass adoption of, you know, any type of blockchain technology, whether it's security tokens or it's Bitcoin or it's anything else. Um, because as far as it's a quicker thing, which has a, a complicated techie user experience, you will not have mass adoption. I have to say that the technology has in, improved tremendously over the last few years. Uh, I mean, blockchain used to be a, a lot more clunky to use before and i think now the user experience is much better it's much more accessible but we still need to keep working on that direction to make this um uh, a mass success what i don't have any doubt is that you know this this will get digitized right there, there is no industry that has survived digitization all the industries eventually have got digitized whether it's been the newspaper it's been uh you know media or it's been now uh, music or anything so this this will come uh, it might take longer because of the complexity of the technology and because these are highly regulated uh, uh, instruments that the regulators also need to feel comfortable with the new technologies to use them, but it will happen. Okay. Well, that's actually a good segue. I was about to ask you, I was saying with, with mass, you know, um, mass adoption, it begs the question of sort of regulation, and you just mentioned this is you know, sort of highly regulated. So I guess I have two questions along these lines. First is, on the sort of the cybersecurity side of things and then on, on sort of compliance. So we know that there are sort of armies of hackers and computer scientists who are you know, out there trying to disrupt technology in their favor. Um, are you concerned or, or what are the sort of the cybersecurity issues that you have to grapple with in terms of securitize? So uh, of course we need to protect our systems and, and be protected from hackers, but the fact that we issue securities on the blockchain is actually more secure than if we kept the record of ownership of securities in our own database, right? Because precisely the blockchain is, is designed as this sort of like cryptographically secure, immutable database that people can record things, right? It's much more difficult to hack. All, all these hacks that we hear in crypto, it's not because people have, have the, the Bitcoin blockchain, they hack, you know, some sort of centralized exchange that had, you know, private keys and access to their wallets and things like that. So the blockchain itself is a better platform 
where you need security than any other type of database or platform out there. So, so from that perspective, I think that what we do is safer than you know what banks and, and things like that uh, do in terms of storing the, the representation of ownership for the assets that they hold on behalf of customers. So, but of course, you know, hackers are always going to be there. They're always going to try to to find ways to to hack things. And the other interesting thing is that because security tokens are not, um, you know, like uh, let's say Bitcoin, that if you send Bitcoin to the wrong wallet, you lose it. With security tokens, there's some degree of control by the regulated entity that issued the, the tokens, which in this case is typically a transfer agent. Um, so even though some damage can happen, it's actually more, much more control than what can happen with, let's say, cryptocurrencies. If you lose control of a cryptocurrency, that is much more difficult to, to retrieve. And the final thing is that at the end of the day, blockchain provides transparency, right? Um, and this is something that regulators should find very interesting and very important because private capital markets today are very opaque because these are markets that operate, let's say, outside the, you know, not outside of the regulatory uh, oversight because there's regulation rules, but they don't have to register anything with the regulator. So as far as they follow certain rules, they can just operate without having to notify anything to the regulator. And the regulator, for the most part, doesn't know what happens there, you know, unless there's, you know, somebody, yeah, you know, there's fraud or something like that, and then it triggers uh, the regulator to intervene. On the blockchain, the regulator actually will have more visibility and more ability to track everything that happens with the security and who holds them and how many there are there that you have not issued more securities that you're authorized to do and things like that. So I tend to think that the regulator, once they start feeling comfortable with the technology, they should be happier with this technology and this way of dealing with securities than the traditional one. So how unhappy or unhappy or happy or unhappy are regulators right now with the, the state of the technology? I think they're getting happier. <laughs> the, I think what happened is our industry kind of started uh, as, a, as a, if you want, continuation of the whole, you know, ICOs and, you know, which was a bit of a mess because there was a lot of illegal things happening, a lot of fraud, uh, et cetera. And then at the beginning, the regulator just thought, you know, these, these are kind of like uh, the same thing. So, so they, they were kind of like, if you want pushing back a little bit on this, this is this myth that everything on the blockchain is used for illegal purposes or for fraud or for money laundering, etc. I think that we're kind of past that. I think the regulators today, they acknowledge that this technology is super valuable and it can improve and transform uh, capital markets. Um, at the same time, obviously, they're conscious about the potential for you know anything new um, to, to be used for, for you know negative things. But if you look at, especially in the US, where we operate as a, as a regulated entity, the last few months of uh, 2020, we've probably made more progress in terms of regulatory uh, acceptance of this technology than the last three years. So I'm pretty positive that this is going to continue improving and that eventually there will not be any regulatory hurdles and this will just be treated as, you know, better ways of doing what the traditional, you know, financial services system is doing, but with more modern digital technologies. So I'd love to spend a few minutes talking about uh, Project Aquaman. Um, so first of all, it's a great name, and that's a great uh, superhero in the DC <laughs> comics. Not a great movie, but uh, he's a great member of the Justice League, so good on that. Um, so what is Project Aquaman all about? So, so Project, I mean, the name of the project is a bit of a, an internal joke because we, you know, we were frustrated that one of the advantages, as I mentioned, of this technology is that once you natively digitize private securities, and private securities typically have more complex, you know, regulatory restrictions. So they're not as easy to trade and to sell, like let's say public securities. And therefore, 
blockchain-based uh, securities or digital asset securities, as we were referring to them, facilitate the trade of private securities. And this is a big deal, right? Because you know public markets are extremely liquid, but private markets are extremely liquid. And part of it is obviously by design, because private capital markets companies stay private because they want to be private. But there is a lot of you know private companies that want to have some degree of liquidity. There's just no simple way of doing it and simple way of trading. And we were frustrated because the, the very few players that have attempted to solve that problem were not performing to you know to what we expected in terms of you know providing good technology experience, providing liquidity, etc. So we thought, okay, we need to go and solve it. So we went to the board and told them, look, we want to solve this problem ourselves. We don't want to wait for somebody else to fix it because we've been waiting for two years and they don't uh, solve it. And we call the project Aquaman because Aquaman is like the most liquid superhero, right? Yeah, I mean, the guy lives in water, literally. So and, and the goal of the project was to provide liquidity to private securities, which then led to the acquisition of a company called Velocity Markets that had a broker dealer and an ATS, an ATS, an alternative trading system, which is the license that allows you to trade private securities. So we already purchased the company. We already got approval from the regulators to transfer the ownership of the company, and we're launching the, you know, a, a private market, a, a marketplace for private securities uh, within the next uh, few weeks. That's exciting. So I'd love to also talk a bit about sort of sort of big picture, sort of forward-looking thoughts. Um, you know, here at the Institute, we've had a multi-year initiative thinking about uh, the future of finance. And I know that you and your team are working to uh, sort of define the future of the industry. So what does the, the industry look like, look like to you in either a year or in sort of 10 years? What are the big trends, especially in the near term, that you think are driving the industry? Well, so... Um... I think that, you know, as I mentioned, one of the thing, big things I see is that, you know, digitization obviously is an unstoppable force and things will get more and more digitized. And then digitization, as we discussed with the case of music, leads to new, you know, use cases and examples uh, of things that, uh, you know, we don't, we cannot foresee now, but it's going to be a big revolution. I think that the incumbent players probably, they either will be displaced or have to acquire some of the new players coming in the space, like it has happened uh in other industries as well and i think that for for the the everyday investor you know all these are going to be good news right like the fact that you have now platforms like growing through the public capital markets or soon you'll have securitized markets for private capital markets where they get access to better investment uh opportunities especially these days where you know yields are close to zero and they look like they're going to stay this way for a long time i think that you know democratizing access to uh, investment opportunities is a very important trend that will come along with digitization because obviously, you know, for, for the, the everyday investor to access these platforms, they have to be end-to-end -end digital and they have to have a good user experience, etc. You can't afford to like deal paper back and forth and signatures like if you're a bank, right? So so I think, you know, in financial services, certainly and fintech in general, digitization is, is the number one trend, which is unstoppable. And we will see the same thing where we saw in music that new pledges will emerge that provide new applications that today the traditional players don't provide with a better user experience. Great, so our last few minutes, I'm gonna ask you uh, so these, the, the three standard questions that I ask uh, all of our guests. And the first one's what we call the ray of sunshine question. And it really came about uh, during the pandemic where things were looking so bleak that we tried to sort of end the show on something positive. So I started asking guests every, every week, you know, what's one positive long-term change that you hope to see as a result of the pandemic? 
I think that for me, um, you know, the fact that we will probably reduce travel, uh, because I used to travel a lot, um, and sometimes you, now that you don't travel at all, <laughs> you realize that probably a lot of it, you know, of the travel we used to, that was a bit unjustified, but it was kind of expected that you would go face-to-face -to, -face to certain meetings and that you will be at conferences and things like that. And I think that, you know, reducing travel um, and then being able to spend more time at home with the kids, et cetera, is a, is a long-term benefit uh, of the pandemic, especially for, for people like me that I used to spend a lot of hours and a lot of time outside home. I also hope to go back to a place where, you know, I can leave home once in a while, not like now that we've been sitting at home since, since March. Uh, but I think that we're not going to go back to the same, you know, crazy schedules in terms of travel conferences and stuff like that that we uh, we had in the past. I think we're going to go to a middle ground that is going to be very positive. Great. So the second question is what we call the, the NASA question, and that is you're about to embark on a, a, a long duration space flight and you can take with you one object on that flight. What do you take? Probably my iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Assuming I have internet, <laughs> because that gives me access to everything. <laughs> All right. And speaking of uh, flights. Question, but the first thing you said is like, what is the object that I use the most every day? It's just the iPhone, right? Right. So we'll stick with flight. And this is a new question that I added quite recently. And it's um, we talked about superheroes. So it's actually related to superheroes. Uh, and that is a superpower. And so it's a choice between two superpowers. Um, it's flight or invisibility. Uh, you can only pick one. And whichever you pick, you're the only person in the world to have that superpower. So do you pick flight? Do you pick invisibility? And what do you do with it? Which one is the first one, sorry? The second one is invisibility and the first, the first one, one is? The first one is flight. Flight meaning? Uh, flight, you can fly. The ability to fly. Uh, fly, okay, okay. Um, I'll probably, that's an interesting one, I'll probably take flight because, you know, as I mentioned, you know, travel takes a lot of time. I love to travel and I love to go and, and meet people face to face. But if I can actually, you know, travel as frequently as I used to do, but at the same time, reduce the time that I'm outside and the time that I'm traveling, that's probably the best scenario, right? Because as, I, as we mentioned about the pandemic, what I like about the pandemic is that I spend a lot of more time at home with my kids. But at the same time, I'm missing to some extent the face-to-face -face meeting. So flying probably solved the, the problem, right? Of being able to meet people without having to stay outside home for such extended period of time. So. Yes. Highly efficient way of getting around, yes. Well, uh, Carlos, it's been really interesting talking to you. I feel like we've just really just sort of scratched the surface of this topic. And I'm hoping that perhaps in a, a few months time, maybe we can get you back to kind of go a little bit deeper. I feel like we know we have this funnel and we've sort of started really, really, really broad and we'll need to sort of kind of take that funnel of knowledge kind of down into sort of deeper. And I would love to have you back at some time to talk more about this. Definitely, it's a very, it's a bit of an esoteric topic, right? Because it's private capital markets and blockchain yes. and things like that. So, so I, I understand it's not easy to communicate. You asked me at the beginning, how do you explain in simple terms what you do? Well, it's not easy, right? Right. <laughs> so, yep. Yep. And it, because it's a very part, esoteric part of the industry that most people don't realize is super, super big and super influential. Yes. And I think you know shows like yours that help educate people in these topics, I think are super important. I'm happy to come back here in a few Great, months to look yeah. yeah, so think of this as sort of the introduction and, and those who obviously know lots about this topic will find it's very, very sort of superficial and introductory, but some may have never thought about this topic and hopefully this will give them a sort of a taste and then we can delve more deeply, um, you know, in a few months time once things are more settled.
That's great. Great. Thank well, you very much. For thank you for your time today. You've been listening to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. If you haven't yet subscribed, you can do so on our YouTube channel or wherever you listen to the show. That way, you never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed today's show, we'd appreciate a rating and review. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us too. And a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.